Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Chad Sanderson, head of product, the data platform at Convoy. This episode is part of the continuing series on data contracts and related data quality topics. Chad covers a lot of the challenges relative to data quality that he sees, both in maintaining quality and in the challenges poor data quality can cause especially for a company like Convoy that is so reliant on data. Chad also shares his tale of trying to implement data mesh at Convoy, and he's doing that via a large-scale inverse Conway maneuver. If you're not familiar with that, there is a link in the show notes to talk about that. But essentially, it is Chad is trying to change the technology first, and that causes an inevitable change to process. This is pretty non-standard in the data mesh world and in generally in the change management in data. Most people are not as bought in on the concept of a very large scale reverse Conway maneuver. But obviously, if it's got a, a name, <laughs> there are people who are doing it as well. So I think going from that perspective and really thinking about this would, would give you a new tool for the tool belt if you want to give it an attempt. Chad covered four categories of data quality pain, which he calls the four horsemen of data quality. One is data omission, which is missing metadata and context, you know, kind of what is this data? Where does it come from? Data waste, which is unused or unmaintained data. Data divergence. This is the difference between your BI and what you're showing on your dashboards and in your warehouse versus what's actually going on in the real world. If you're not constantly evolving your business intelligence, your business logic to show what's really going on, you're going to have that data divergence. And then data downtime, which is wrong or missing data. And this is what most people think of when they uh, think about data quality issues. Chad's team is not trying to tackle all those issues at once with one big solution. He's looking to 
have different approaches to tackle each of them as, as separate challenges rather than trying to bite it off as one giant uh, bite. Chad had some other advice. Um, one of his big ones was don't talk about things in the abstract. You know, uh, we've got data quality pains and you need to have high data quality. Go and actually talk to people, pinpoint the pain, share, share those stories and how people are working to prevent them. Ask for the negative impact of data quality issues, but also go to those teams that maybe are, you can call it the cause or whatever, but the upstream data producers, what are they doing or why is it so hard to ensure data quality downstream? Most of the time, it's probably not that they don't care. It's that they don't know what they're doing and the impact. You might run across some interesting insights going and having those conversations. In Chad's mind, data quality must be uh, a specific business target as ensuring data quality can actually slow down development. If you're telling teams that they have to care about what their impact is downstream, it might uh, throw a bit of a wrench in that. Or telling teams that, you know, whether features or output is what you're measuring them on, then they don't want to ensure data quality themselves. Uh, you can't make those opposing forces and really do have high quality data. So if you really want to move towards a high data quality type of organization, you have to drive the prioritization of that at the management level. So it becomes a measurement for the engineering leads. Otherwise, there are always going to be outliers that don't really care about data quality, even in organizations that have higher trust. Lastly, Chad emphasizes the need for the data mesh community to focus more on the problem and not get so wrapped up in a specific solution or the solution sets. You know, what are we really trying to solve? Is it just data quality? In my mind, no. Is data quality an, an important aspect of being able to be scalable and agile? Yes. If you don't have good data quality, you can't change your company in very, very fast, agile ways without either a lot of risk because you can't really trust the data or you know, you're just not as informed as to what would be the better change. So I, I think you'll learn a lot from this one. I, it was really interesting and, and Chad is just a fun person to talk to. So I hope you have a lot of fun listening to it as well. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Hi, everybody. Really excited for this interview. I've got Chad Sanderson here. Um, I've run across Chad quite a few times on LinkedIn the last few months. He's made a lot of really, really great posts. Uh, Chad is the head of data and leading the uh, data platform side at the startup Convoy. So uh, he's got a lot of really great opinions and um, perspective on 
a lot of things around this. And, and we're going to start with data contracts and kind of go through a lot of interesting aspects as well. So Chad, if you don't mind giving a quick intro and then we can jump into uh, talking all about data contracts. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. And I am uh, Chad Sanderson, like you said. I am the head of uh, product for the data platform team at Convoy. Convoy is a Series D startup in the freight space. We have a lot of complex, small data, and that presents some interesting challenges. My team owns the end-to-end data technology stack. So that's everything from instrumentation, ingestion, ETL, orchestration, the data warehouse, data lake, all the way up through what we call the application layer, which is the way that various teams use data in order to solve problems at the company. So experimentation, machine learning, BI, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Prior to my job at Convoy, I worked on the uh, artificial intelligence platform team at Microsoft. And then before that, I was a program manager and product owner at various companies for uh, experimentation and analytics. Awesome. And and I think that gives you a lot of interesting background, right? That you've kind of been somebody who's been kind of hands-on, but also more on the program management side of the higher level of, hey, we're, we're trying to uh, put together all the pieces. So I, I think that gives you a really interesting perspective. Um, so we've talked a little bit offline about data contract side and kind of the challenges of moving towards data contracts, both from the technical aspect, but also especially the people side of things. Can you give a, a little bit of background as to what you've been doing at, at Convoy around the data contract side? Absolutely. So um, just to you know, quickly reiterate the main value proposition of the data contract, the idea is today at most companies and certainly at Convoy, engineers are emitting a lot of service level events into the production database. And these service level events don't have that much to do with analytics. They are primarily for services to use, for the application to use. They're not documented very well. They're not structured very well. They're not named very well. And despite this, these events, this data, which I've been, uh, I've been calling data exhaust because that's really what it is, is admitted into the data warehouse, usually from a change data capture system. And all of this data exhaust then forms the foundation of what we call our quote-unquote trusted schemas or blessed schemas. And then people use that data, right? They start to add business logic on top of it. That business logic oftentimes is really complex. It may take hundreds of lines of SQL to um, essentially uh, replicate these business concepts on top of Lego bricks that were never really intended to build anything. And uh, that is one of the big sources of data quality. So the upstream starts to break as the services evolve and the downstream starts to break as 
businesses evolve and uh, data science teams can't keep up with that evolution. So data contracts are a great way of establishing schema upstream and treating data as an API. Now, in terms of what Convoy has done and how we've invested in this uh, in this space, we've got all Kafka. Uh, we love Kafka. Kafka is really great for uh, schemas and schema management, and there's all sorts of great uh, schema registry infrastructure that uh, already exists. And uh, we put together a, a protobuf equivalent that uh, allowed somebody to use a SDK to uh, instrument Kafka streams, to evolve the schemas of those Kafka streams, and to uh, deprecate or change those Kafka streams as they saw fit. And the other thing that we did was allowed a the data science team to define the contract or the data consumer to define what the contract looked like in business terms. And so the data scientist and the engineer in that sense are interacting with each other to produce this a- API. The engineer instruments the API through our SDK. And as that data flows into the data warehouse, we have some um, automatic parsing tools that uh, sort of move it into a format that can be consumed for machine learning and is trustworthy. And most of the data quality checks are pushed upstream. Great. And, and um, one thing that I did want to uh, talk about a little bit as well was the, we were talking about the building complex business logic on Lego blocks. I, I tend to think of those Lego blocks as sand or quicksand, right? It's something that's, right. that's just not built for <laughs> what we're trying to, to actually do on the data side, right? And how do you push that knowledge upstream to somebody around um, how their stuff is, is used? So you talked about kind of creating these, this API culture. Is that tool first or is that people first? It's a combination of both. Um, you definitely need to have the culture. Any major shift in how an organization operates needs to have some cultural motivation to begin with. But at the same time, if you don't have tools that make that transition friction-free or at least substantially reduce the pain, uh, you don't have a carrot and you you oftentimes don't even have a stick either. So adoption is always going to be really, really difficult. So we went at it from the tooling approach uh, first and tried to make the case that if we have really great tools in place, then we think that culture is going to follow. And the example that I use all the time internally is, is GitHub, right? When, uh, if you're starting to invest in uh, DevOps or a culture of, of DevOps at an organization that's never had it before, it's probably going to be a really difficult thing to do unless there is some solution like GitHub, which makes it easy. It's easy to onboard. It's easy to do PRs. Version control is super simple. You can leave comments on things really easily. You can, you know, merge branches, all, all that type of stuff. Because it's so simple and there's an interface for it then everybody's going to do it. And this is sort of the basis of all product design and really good product development, right? Like the easier something is to do, the more people are going to adopt it and the lower the friction is going to be for any sort of uh, any sort of uh, migration. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and um, when you started on the, the tooling side, 
you're talking a lot about using Kafka and, and things like that. How much of this did you have to custom roll versus be able to just kind of go out there and grab what was existing? You know, was this a, a very complicated project and kind of where, where are you as well within this project around um, implementing data contracts? So I would say we're about 50% there. We're still learning a lot of things. We're definitely not all the way done. And some stuff, you know, I realize like a year into this project or six months into this project, wow, that was a really stupid decision. I was thinking about that totally <laughs> incorrectly. Um, we have custom rolled a lot, but we've used um, open source as the foundation in most cases. So the SDK that I mentioned, it is protobuf-like at the time. Uh, we couldn't find something that supported TypeScript, and most of our app is built in TypeScript, so we needed to be able to support that. We have uh, an internal uh, IDL that we call Philo Events, and we leverage that um, for the actual uh, uh, event uh, definition library. Uh, we use Kafka, as, our as I said, um, because the, the schema um, management uh, technology was really great. You've got Kafka Connect and you've got uh, you know schema registry. Um, so a lot of a lot of the SDK side of things it was sort of this combination of custom stuff that we had to roll ourselves and uh, existing uh, open source technology. Then there's another component to the platform that internally we call chassis. And chassis is essentially a Git-based knowledge graph that is designed to, uh, it, it allows a data consumer to generate a schema, uh, basically a PRD for any event, attach that event in a graph to an entity, and supply context. So what is this event? What is the schema? Um, what are all the properties? What do the properties mean? How should they be used? and so on and so forth. And then that surface is used by the engineers to ask really good questions. It's used by the data scientists to ask good questions. Like, do we need this event? Is this something we're capturing elsewhere? Is this property something that we're already capturing? Should we add more information so that we can benefit folks beyond just the team that's asking for the event? Um, and then that becomes the contract. That becomes the contract that the engineer uses to implement the schema. Um, and that's something else that a lot of it is custom rolled, but we're relying on, um, Neptune graph database for that. A lot of like fun sort of front end stuff. It's basically in a lot of ways, an abstraction on top of GitHub. So, uh, the GitHub API is leveraged uh, pretty heavily as well. Yeah. And, and if, if you don't mind, um, uh, I know some people don't like to air their, their dirty laundry, but what, what were a couple of things that you were thinking about that you now think, oh, I, I wish I wouldn't have gone down that path just to try and prevent the toil for others? Is there anything, any advice that you'd give to somebody who's early in this journey, who's starting down it? Yeah, there's there's a lot of advice. I mean, honestly, on the technology side, I think that the investments we made were pretty good, although I don't think they went far enough in a lot of cases. Um when we're thinking about creating contracts, at first we, we, we wanted to say, okay, we're just going to focus on services and uh, focus on creating like a really good uh, definition framework for you know working within services and the transactional outbox pattern. But then as we thought about it more, we realized, well, wait a second, 
Um, front-end events are really important too. And yes, we may have some existing tools for you know creating those, and we don't want to you know replicate the wheel or anything like that. But when you have multiple different SDKs, multiple different uh, libraries for implementing events, and they're scattered all around the company, it's going to be really, really hard to then join all that together, all that data together in a meaningful way. And so we just we just needed to think a little bit more holistically and a little bit carefully about our entire pattern of instrumentation and where all of our data was coming from and how that data should be consumed. So we kind of had to do some double backing there. And uh, that was a little bit painful. The other pain, the major pain, I'll, I'll say, came from how we tried to implement all of this and then get people using it. <laughs> um, so uh, we definitely had a lot of excitement about the stuff that we were building and implementing and all the problems that it could solve. But this was a huge culture shift. This was a major, major change in how teams have been operating up to this point. You know, engineers had never cared about analytics and never even thought about analytics. And uh, data scientists really hadn't cared that much about what was happening in services, except when they needed to go and discover where the data was and they realized, you know, they, the the documentation in the data warehouse wasn't really explaining it completely. So they had to go and dive into Postgres to actually understand how all this stuff worked. That's really the only time that they cared about it. And so uh, creating the 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 understanding and the awareness of how these tools and these techniques would actually be served to solve data quality uh, was was a really really difficult thing to drive buy-in for. And a year later, I probably would have framed it totally differently out of the gate. Uh, the, way, the way that we initially sold it was, you know, this is going to be the thing that solves a lot of your data, data quality problems. We had all these issues with immutable data where a single entity, uh, a row would get updated in, um, in production and we lose all that information and, and that was really bad. And so we were trying to figure out how we could get a better history, like a lineage of our data. And so we, we sort of sold it around that. You know, there, there's some important use cases around analytics that we couldn't really solve. There were, there were a few data quality use cases that um, caused people pain. But there's a much, much bigger story there uh, around like, you know, Convoy as a company is built around data. That's what the company is. Without our data, we're we're nothing. We're no different from any other traditional broker that exists in the world. And we're also based around machine learning. And without machine learning, we're really no different from any other uh, broker that uh, exists in the world. And so our, our data is really our, our fundamental competitive advantage, and it's our moat. And if we are not able to innovate quickly over our data, um, if we are not able to take advantage of the network effects of our data, then that's actually going to become a scale blocker. And that story resonated way better with leadership, and we were able to drive a lot more buy-in when we, we, we focused hard on, the, on how uh, the data in the state it was today actually blocked innovation. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think there's a lot of people out there who want to do data mesh and things similar to what you're, what you're doing as well that are really just trying to do it because they think it sounds cool or they're like, imagine all the things we could do versus having that business case and, and going to leadership and saying, right. hey, if, if we do this, 
here is the positive result, or if we don't do this, here's the negative result. And it's not, hey, we want to do data mesh. It's, hey, we want to get to a place where we're much faster and more scalable than our competitors when it comes to data so we can react quicker and be smarter, right? <laughs> that gives us a competitive advantage. Yes, the, the way that we do that is via data mesh implementation or whatever, but yeah, exactly. Um, and you, you had recently uh, posted on, on LinkedIn about what you were calling uh, the four horsemen of, let me see, uh, the four horsemen of data quality. And that was data omission, data waste, data divergence, and data downtime. Uh, could you give a little bit of color around that and how this kind of plays into what you were just talking about? Yeah, totally. So I think, um, to your point, that concepts like data mesh are really cool and they sound great. And even when we talk about a lot of data quality initiatives, they're really cool and they sound great. And it kind of makes sense if you live in this data world and you're surrounded by data quality all the time. Like, of course, you know, we need to make sure that there is a certification process of our data. Like that just makes sense. But going to anyone in the business and saying, hey, this is why this is a solution that's going to solve you know, a bunch of really interesting problems and so on and so forth. I found that it doesn't really resonate well um, unless, like you've said, you're able to make that pain um, super, uh, like, like people can feel the pain when you're talking about the problem. If they can't feel the pain uh, or it's kind of an abstract pain, then they're not going to buy in as easily. There's other things that they can focus on. And so when I was thinking about what are the most painful problems that data scientists and data consumers and analysts actually experience day to day. And we can point to specific, tangible examples of those problems and then connect them to uh, uh, data mesh or data contracts or a knowledge layer or anything like that. You know, what, what would those things be? So we went out, we talked to a ton of data scientists in the organization. We talked to, you know, I would say 75 to 80% of uh, all of the data workers at Convoy. And we asked them, what are your top problems? Where are you spending the most time? On the things that you're spending the most time, where do you have the most pain? What are the tools that you're using that are causing the most pain? And so on and so forth. And there's really four categories of work that we've, uh, the four categories of pain that we've come up with that seem to be relatively consistent across uh, basically everybody to different degrees. The first is uh, data omission, and omission refers to data, uh, metadata that is missing, and that metadata would, in the ideal world, allow customers to understand how data is used and who owns it and what it means and where it's located, and data cataloging tools, I think, definitely solve a piece of this problem, depending on the tool that you use. Some may solve you know, the where it's located problem really well. Some people solve the who owns it problem um, somewhat well. But in general, I find that there's really no tool out, to, out today that solves the entire omission problem. And what inevitably happens is data folks will have to bounce between multiple tools. They'll have to use one tool for one thing. Then they'll have to go into Slack and talk to people about other things. And um, that, that adds a lot of pain to the data discovery and the data modification and creation experience. The second is data waste. And waste refers to um, the growth of unused, unmaintained, duplicated, 
or similar queries that end up inflating cost while uh, obscuring clarity. Uh, and, th and this is a real problem. And it, it usually happens when the cost of recreating data to make it sort of fit the thing that you want is lower than the cost of reusing something that already exists. So someone might say, I'm going to create my own column. I'm going to modify that column and potentially add some filters on top of it and add a whole bunch of other columns that exist elsewhere in the company and sort of add my own filters and tweak and, and prod them the way that I want. And, and now you have this, uh, you, have, you have two different states of the world. You have, if you ask a relatively simple business question, like, you know, what is the total number of active customers that we have? Depending on the team that you ask and how they've constructed that data, you might get two different answers. And that's uh, problematic as well. The third problem is data divergence. And divergence is the growing divide between what's happening in the real world and what's happening, uh, what's, what's being reflected in the data warehouse. And we kind of touched on that problem at the beginning of the conversation, but when you're consuming all of this data exhaust, and then you're building sort of almost like, you know, reverse engineering business logic on top of it, what happens is you now have to have a human being in the loop, always thinking about when the business evolves, how they're modifying their queries to keep up, or those queries are going to be reflecting an old state of the world, right? Like things are going to be actively changing all the time. And uh, if someone is not modifying those queries, which might be hundreds of lines long with many, many joins, you know, a single line of SQL can cause the interpretation of a metric or a table to be different from, from what's going on in, uh, in reality. And then the last is downtime. And downtime is periods of time where the data itself is like partial or it's erroneous or it's missing or it's late or, or things like that. And I think that represents sort of your traditional data quality problem, meaning that we know something is broken. We're aware that the data is not serving us the way that it needs to be. And there's a gap between we can, when we can uh, uh, fix it and deliver value to our customers. Well, at least you hope, you know, when something is broken. You hope, you hope. <laughs> The uh, the real real is when you don't know that it's it's broken and it's broken. Yeah, that's um, no. I, I think that that's really important. And, and have you started to kind of circulate this internally with the data producers to let them know about these these concepts, or are you starting to tackle each of these separately or as kind of one bigger initiative? How do you think about uh, approaching these four different issues? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, so we try to tackle them separately. Uh, so like I said, my team is a data infrastructure team. We're a platform team. We have software engineers, data engineers uh, who are actively thinking about these types of problems all the time. And um, it's, I don't, in my opinion, it's not supremely valuable to go to your customers and then tell them what their problems are, right? It, it's really, you know, Convoy works with um, shippers and carriers who take freight. It, it really wouldn't be any different from us going to our shippers and saying, hey, just so you know, um, the reason that you're not, that you're having a really bad time using our platform is because we're doing like a terrible job providing a good experience for you. You know, their response is gonna be something like, okay, go fix it, please. <laughs> um, and and that, that's kind of how we think about 
how, how we think about a lot of these issues as well is that it's our responsibility as a data team and as an infrastructure team to think about the best solutions for our customers. Their job is really just to use that data most effectively to solve um, business problems. So essentially what we did is we started from something called the, the OPP, or that's what we call it internally. It's the exact opposite of an MVP, minim, minimum viable product. It's the optimum possible product. So like, what is this, the ideal state of the world for each horseman of data quality that if, if this was the state of the world that existed, you could effectively call that horseman dead. Like it's solved and the problem is no more. Um, and that re actually requires a, a pretty tremendous amount of thought. Like even if you take one of those, like uh, omission, what, what is a state of the world where if you're a data scientist that's trying to understand how data gets used and who created it and where it is and exactly what it is, they're able to get all of that context in a single experience. Um, what, what type of data would need to be present? Where would we need to collect that data from? Who would be the owner of that data? And um, how would we modify it and make sure it stays current? So really, this is just great um, or, or really good uh, or best practices for product development applied at the data level. And when we went through these exercises, that's basically how we came up with data contracts, totally independently from how a lot of the other folks you've had on the show came up with data contracts. It was just a solution to um, uh, one of these uh, problems or a set of these problems that we identified. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of, this is actually part of why I'm doing the podcast is because of what you just said of you independently came up with a lot of the same things. I think people are finding the same approaches um, independently of each other. And if we can get more people talking about, hey, here was my approach, then people don't have to invent things whole cloth themselves. <laughs> but um, yeah, so there was one thing that I wanted to key in on there, which was your team are the ones that have to deliver on so many of these initiatives so do you see these as technical or do you see these as more people process side? And if it is people process side, are you still the team that has to, to manage the, the, you know, socio-technical, the actual socio part of that? So um, like, like I was saying a little bit earlier, my personal perspective, and I know there are some folks that disagree with me, is I think that uh, culture follows product. Culture follows technology. You know, not the only way around. Um, once, once you have Gmail, once you have a really great email system, then you can start building a culture around email, where everybody is, is emailing each other, and you, you don't have to be in the office anymore. Uh, once you have Zoom, then you you can build a culture of uh, of work from home because uh, you can have you can have conversations from your from your computer. Um, uh, you know, once you have like really great uh, sort of CI/CD tools, then you can build a culture of CI/CD. Uh, so, so that's sort of the way that I I frame problems is that uh, first you identify you you identify the core of the issue, you identify how we can use innovative technology in order to solve that problem, and then you focus on a migration to that technology that eventually results in a change in culture. And sometimes. It's really easy to do that because the solution is self-evident or there's another product that already exists on the marketplace and all you have to do is pay a little bit of money and then culture changes. Uh, and sometimes it's not so evident. Sometimes you're 
discovering things that are brand new that that don't really have uh, a precedent, which is kind of where we are with data mesh and data mesh technology in general. Um, so the way that that we have basically approached this was to start by uh, leveraging our team to get a really robust understanding of the problem. And that wasn't just an understanding of the problem in the abstract sense, but in the specific sense, as in going into specific tables in the data warehouse and saying, this is how these tables could be improved if we move to a data mesh model and a data contract-based model. Like going to that level of detail, um, here is how much less time you're going to be spending on data munging. Here is the number of COEs that have occurred in the past six months that either wouldn't have occurred at all or would at least have a very clear owner on the engineering side that would be able to debug this and we wouldn't have found out three months later that our models were actually being trained on the incorrect data. So we started with that approach. And because this is not the type of product that um, really you can adopt organically, at, at Convoy, we've sort of split this into two, there's two types of uh, major initiatives. There's um, enablement initiatives and enforcement initiatives. And an enablement initiative is one where it's probably going to be uh, team by team. There's a, uh, a linear value in any team adopting the software. Um, whereas enforcement is the organization as a whole really needs to buy in. And once the entire organization is bought in, then you see an exponential um, uh, an exponential increase in value. So a good example of this might be like uh, security, for, ex- for example. You know, you really need everybody to be secure in order to gain the value of, of security software. And it's in my perspective that uh, data quality uh, platforms and tools follow the same dynamic as security where you really only start getting massive benefits when you have massive adoption. And massive adoption actually has to come from the top down. You can't go bottoms up with this. You have to start with your leadership team saying, this is the way that we're going to do things from now on. We believe that this is valuable. Our company believes that this is valuable. And there is some mechanism for enforcement, uh, hence the name. So where we really started was making sure our leadership team really understood it and they got it and ranked our failure in controlling data quality equally as high is failures that we made elsewhere in the business, like you know, product failures, not being able to make enough, enough money, not being able to grow as fast. It needed to be ranked as a, on a similar level as that. And that required a tremendous amount of selling. And once that selling was done, then um, leadership was able to enforce that, that cultural switch and we could navigate that process a lot easier. Hmm. Yeah. And, and what I would say is, is, you are kind of contrarian in the the data mesh space when talking about kind of doing an inverse Conway maneuver at such a high scale, but it also sounds like you were kind of at least getting the high level cultural buy-in that this matters. And once you have that, then you can start to try to do the inverse Conway maneuver but if if they weren't bought in, then it, it wouldn't have been um, even possible at that at that point. Or or do you think that you even had technology in place to prove that it mattered? I don't think unless you have the buy in, it's going to work. 
Um, and I, I, you know, this has been my experience, not just in data mesh, but I've gone through the same exact process across multiple data initiatives that really required a hardline top-down approach. For example, experimentation. Experimentation, um, similar to data quality, is a cost. It's not a immediate apparent benefit, right? When you're running experiments, especially uh, when your feature team is, they're, they're pumping out a lot of features, they're growing really, really quickly. It's easy to make the case, hey, if we run experiments, we're actually going to be slowing ourselves down and we're not going to be launching as much. Um, we're, in fact, we might be launching half as much. It might take two weeks, three weeks just to get a signal on whether or not the feature we released is quality or not. And so the only way to get adoption on that is to sell leadership and to say there is value in slowing down. If we don't slow down, if we don't measure accurately, if we don't know the impact of the things that we're releasing, we could be prone to making some very, very bad mistakes. And um, on the inverse, if we do know what we're measuring, we're going to be able to invest our headcount much more intelligently. And here's some examples of that uh, of that of that occurring. Here's an example of where when we knew we measured something accurately, we could put the headcount here and we were able to scale that uh, much more effectively, much faster than we otherwise would have. And here's an example of when we measured something and it was bad, we could take headcount away from that uh, because because it actually wasn't the it, w it wasn't the right um, avenue to invest in. I think data quality needs a similar selling mechanism. You can't start at the bottom and say, we're going to do all this really great transformation and people are going to see it and just adopt it because fundamentally everybody has to be incentivized to adopt it. There actually has to be a reason. And folks, I think, believe somewhat incorrectly that there is like an inherent incentive to adopt data quality initiatives. But in my experience, that has not been true. Um, to give you a concrete example, uh, our data science team originally reported up through the product organization. And what that meant was, if you looked at their promotion guidelines, they were judged based on their ability to deliver business value. So how many models did you deploy? How valuable were those models? How many experiments did you analyze? And were those experiments successful? So if they increased top line revenue, get a promotion. If you don't increase top line revenue, don't get a promotion. So what does that mean for data quality? It means that data quality becomes a burden, right? If it is going to cost you three weeks or four weeks or three months or six months to go in and do data quality right and redo all of your queries to make sure that you trust the data and go through a major migration, um, you're not going to get rewarded for that. It's going to be a waste of time in terms of your career progression. And so the only way to make people incentivized to do that work is to get the leadership to agree, hey, doing data quality is valuable to the business. And here's why it's valuable to the business. It's valuable because if we don't do it, we're not going to be able to scale. We're not going to be able to innovate as quickly. We're not going to be able to trust the type of data that we that we put out. And so a, a competitor that maybe does trust their data can, data can come out and, and outperform us. Um, so that, that's basically what I've observed is that if, if you don't have that top-down mechanism for a cost sink, the, the ability to incentivize people to, to work on it and adopt it is, is very unlikely. It's low. Yeah. And, and I think kind of talking to that of the data science folks, I'm sure were very, very bought in on data quality for the data that they were 
consuming from the upstream, but not for what they were putting out, right? Where they were like, yes, we want everybody else to be pushing high quality data to us, but we don't want to be uh, necessarily focused on uh, having to do our own quality around our data. So how do you get people to kind of come to an agreement that we're all better if we're all focused on it. And what what did you find was the, you talked about aligning the incentives, but what were the, what are the incentives that you're finding or, or what, what have you tried that hasn't worked or what have you tried that that is working and, and getting people kind of aligned that way? I think the thing that definitely hasn't worked is talking in the abstract. This is something that we tried, and I think it's also something a lot of data teams do, including me, and saying things like, there are principles of data quality, and those principles of data quality are very good. You want to have high uptime, you want to have you know other SLAs, and if you do all this, your data will be robust, and it will be trustworthy, and everyone will be happy. That's a really abstract, vague concept, and it doesn't mean anything to anybody on the ground. So... It, it really does involve, and there's no other way to do this, it really does involve going down to the org level, to the team level, to the pod level, and asking questions and understanding, hey, like, tell me what broke recently. Tell me why it broke recently. Um, you know, you're, you ha- we, this particular organization isn't very good at writing tests in DBT. Why not? Why is it a burden? Give me some examples. Um, what is the most untrustworthy data that we have and what are the problems that uh, that data has caused, right? Asking those questions around the organization is going to give you some very, very uh, specific and explicit instances of how data negatively uh, impacts the company. So I can give you one example of when we did this exercise at Convoy. Uh, At Convoy, we have a table that's called transactional tenders. And the transactional tenders table is one of the widest tables at the company. It was created about three to four years ago by um, a set of data scientists and data engineers, the majority of which are no longer employed at Convoy. That tata, the table has had 20 different modifiers over that time period, and 11 of them have left Convoy. There's basically no documentation. It's around... Uh, 500 lines of SQL with 48 joins. And so if you looked at the cumulative code, it's about 1,200 lines of SQL. And what all that SQL is doing is totally uh, is totally opaque to 99% of people, uh, 99% of, of data scientists and data consumers at the company. And this is like a critical table for some of our most important machine learning models. We have machine learning models that are training on this data and uh, helping to, uh, or at least they were, helping to price a lot of our shipments, right? This is a really scary thing. And so data scientists would uh, actively come out and they would say, I don't know what the heck is going on in this table. I don't know what this stuff is. I have to use it because it's a fundamental component of my models and my training data, but I don't really trust it. And I'm going to have to rebuild many parts of it myself. And sometimes things break. And when things break, there's COEs. And you can actually point to a dollar value of those COEs. So we took that table and we basically said, okay, 
how do we make this better? Um, is there a systemic way, a systematic way of us improving tables like transactional tenders through data contracts and through events? And once we really understood the problem and the solution really well, and we did that across multiple areas of the business, then we put together a document and we basically said, here's all the different categories of problems. Here's the issues of ownership. Here are tables where we don't have a clear owner. Nobody wants to take ownership because somebody just built this and left and it's this huge nasty thing and nobody understands it. Here's the impact of not having ownership. Here's the impact of not having documentation. Here's the impact of having data that's immutable and, and so on and so forth. And you then you present that as a narrative for leadership. And if you do it in, in if you do it in the in the correct way, um, as most uh, due to the importance and the impact of data quality at most of these companies, it should be overwhelmingly apparent to the leadership team why this is such a major issue, like why why it's such a, a big problem. Are you finding as well taking those stories to the producer team? Or are they what whether it's you're taking the stories and kind of coming with a bit of uh, a blameless attitude or if you're taking the people who were impacted directly by data quality issues and, and going to those producers and connecting the two of them, has that been helpful? This, this was something that um, when I, I spoke with Max Schultz at uh, Zalando, he was saying, you know, just facilitating those conversations led to much more collaboration up and downstream. Is that something where you're you've tried or is that something that that you think can work in most organizations some organizations i think it can work in most organizations it's absolutely worked i i think it's a second order priority in my opinion i think the the most important thing is um yes the upstream producers need to understand this they need to understand the impact of you know why they should care about the downstream. But fundamentally, again, you know, like I said, we're not really trying to convince any individual software engineer, any individual producer of how they could be doing things better. Uh, to me, that's the wrong approach. If, if you're playing that, if that's the game that you're playing, uh, you're always going to be at the mercy of whatever the business decides is a more important priority. Right. If you go to the engineers, they may totally agree with you and say, yeah, I, I get it. I understand that, you know, when I'm emitting events, it's going to impact the people downstream and I should be thinking about analytics and so on and so forth. But there's a cost, right? There's a time investment. You have to think about how you create the schema, like how you build this API. Now you have to be on the hook for SLAs and like a lot of other things that you were on the hook for before. And if your boss comes to you and they say, uh, hey, buddy, we're going to need you to spend 95% uh, of your time building new features, and the other 5% of your time needs to be on call, or the other you know, 10, 20% needs to be on call, then they have to prioritize the thing that their boss has told them to do. And what you asked is just going to get you know, sort of shucked down to the side. And I've seen that happen over and over and over again in, in many different organizations. That's why, the, I, again, you know, in my opinion, the, the only way that it's going to work is if you start from leadership and convince leadership and then trickle down from leadership and basically say, uh, okay, you know, our CTO needs to understand the importance of the engineering team taking ownership 
and taking accountability of analytics and like why that's impactful and why that helps the business. And generally what happens after that's in place is, you know, the director level engineering talent or the director level managers are then going to be on the hook. And they'll say, listen, okay, you guys are now going to be accountable. Like if stuff is breaking in the data warehouse, it's going to be on you. So as an organization, we need to figure out how to do this in in the most ideal way together. And we can start with the technology and the technology will facilitate the culture change. Okay. It sounds, it's just, it's, it's so interesting. The, the number of conversations I have where it is, every culture is so different. And I think this is part of why when we talk about data mesh implementations, the, the technology side, I don't think there, there's missing places and there needs to be more information sharing of how to do a lot of different aspects, but technology is not really the hard part of this. And you can't have a framework for, this is how you, you uh, can get anyone on board to doing data mesh, or this is exactly how every company should do their kind of cultural shift. So it's, it's fascinating to, to kind of see these different perspectives. Um, so, you know, you're, you're working through your, your journey, whether you're calling it data mesh or not. I, I think you've, you've called it data mesh sometimes. Sometimes you've called it not. So I don't want to uh, slap the label on if you don't want to slap it on. But, um, but like, where do you think you are in, in this journey? And where, where are you running across challenges that you're looking for more information on? What, what do you think isn't out there? Where where should I be digging next? Where should the community be digging next? Yeah. And, and to be clear, I think that data mesh is definitely the end state. But I think the way that I frame data mesh is that it is, a, is an organi- organizational model. And it's a relatively specific organizational model. And so Convoy is in a transition to that. But uh, we're certainly not there yet. And um, the the approach that we're taking is to make sure that all of the players, the engineers, the analytics engineers, and the data scientists and other data consumers are fully brought in, bought into the problems that Data Mesh is solving. And they're seeing how solving those problems can result in a better company. And uh, it, before we make this sort of uh, significant uh, or organizational shift and we start shifting heads around and hiring a lot of uh, new faces and things like that. Um, and then in terms of, you know, what isn't being covered well or, or uh, what, is, what is being missed, I think that there is a, uh, a really big gap right now around, like, the knowledge layer. So having contra- data contracts, incredibly important. Um, having the organizational model is incredibly important. But there's a lot of questions that I think are outstanding around, well, okay, um, if we're going to have data contracts, uh, who is producing those? How are they producing those? How are we ensuring that a contract that's created in one service isn't duplicative? Um, how do we ensure that uh, a downstream team who might need data from an upstream team is able to get that? Uh, there's a whole series of you know relationships that need to be built. Uh, culture and uh, organizational change that needs to be facilitated that goes beyond purely 
um, you know, uh, uh, data contracts and and uh, engineers and analytics engineers having a certain set of responsibilities. There's a new set of processes. Um, PRDs are definitely one way of doing this, but what I found again is that uh, while the PRD is very valuable, when we move to the data contract world, what we're really doing is we're evolving our understanding of the business as expressed through data. And you have entities, you know, nouns that exist in the world, and there's semantic events that are happening in the real world, and we need to capture those. And whenever we make a PRD or making a, a, a new data contract, we're essentially uh, creating a new node in this graph of entities and uh, events. And uh, having a surface that allows you to do that I think is really important. And I haven't really seen that much out there talking about this. The idea of knowledge graphs is definitely um, not a new thing, but a knowledge graph that actually facilitates the development of the schema, I think uh, is new. And I think that that's going to become a, a pretty critically important part of this entire process as well. Yeah, I strongly agree. It's, it's why I'm working with the uh, knowledge graph conference to do a takeover of data mesh radio for, uh, you know, ahead of their their conference to tackle a lot of these things because I'm not uh, deep enough in that concept, right? It's it's such a new thing to me about how you would apply that technically and socially together. Um, so I'm I'm gonna have uh, I'm I'm looking to have a lot of people from the knowledge graph space to to do that as well. I think. Um, having these deep dives around topics like that are really important. So that way people can go and not just have one aspect or one opinion to, to really learn from. So exactly what you're talking about. Um, well, you know, I think we've kind of covered a lot of ground here. Uh, it's been really, really helpful and fascinating and enlightening. Is there anything that we didn't really dig into that you think we should around kind of the data contract space, the the data quality, and kind of the cultural, the the socio side of the socio technical around uh, challenges you're seeing or or things that you want more information on or or anything like that. Uh, you know, we did cover a lot of ground, and uh, so so thank you for <laughs> asking great questions. Um, I think the only thing that I would probably part with is that I, I love data mesh and I love data mesh as a concept, but to your point that you made earlier, I think um, when I've talked to a bunch of folks about data mesh and uh, people who've tried to sell it internally, that uh, we can get a bit, a bit lost in the solution over the problem. And that to me is actually more important than any organizational model is like how well have we solved the problem? And I think that, um, you know, if data mesh is a good organizational model, and I believe that it is, that if we actually solve the problem quite well, if we give um, tools and platforms and capabilities and set people up uh, in the best way to succeed to solve these problems, then the data mesh model will almost naturally emerge. 
uh, in the same way that the DevOps model almost naturally emerged from having really great uh, CI/CD uh, best practices and things like that. So that that would be the only thing that I leave folks with uh, is to, is to think about it that way. Um, working or organizationally first is definitely possible, but I, I think um, people are going to be in for a lot of pain and and heartache if that's the approach they take. Yeah, I, I thought you were actually going to go in a slightly different angle of the. Um, the so what, right? Uh, I think we also have to, to when we're talking to leadership and things, talking about the so what, you know, hey, we've got this really interesting challenge. We're trying to teach fish to do math. Why? Like, why are you doing this versus, you know, okay, what we're trying to do with data mesh is make it so that when we have questions, we're prepared with the data and that we have repeatability and reliability of our data that, that there's they're usable for what people want when it comes to data and that we can infuse our day-to-day decisions and that we can make decisions much faster and much more reliably, uh, whether it's a, a big decision or a small decision, but that we have that capability. And, and making, you know, I don't like the pitch to people of imagine a world where, but it kind of is. It's what could we do more? You you were just talking about, or you were talking earlier about um, this impacts our business. If you go and and say, hey, if we if we improved our data quality in these three ways, we could reliably figure out or we could reliably take on 30% more business without having a margin hit, right? Like that type of information flow and that being that much more agile and uh, intelligent about what you're doing just can create just rocket boots underneath your company. So how do we get those stories out there and how do we package that up? I think is, is, Something that as people get further along their journey, I'm, I'm hoping to get more of those stories as well of what, what, what is the output? What is the so what? But I think you, you've given a lot of people a lot of really, really good food for thought. Um, you're very active on uh, LinkedIn. So I want to make sure I'll drop that in the show notes. You're, you're LinkedIn, but um, where else or is there other places people can find you? Is that your kind of preferred method for people getting in touch? Um, you know, anything you want to kind of plug as well as we're kind of wrapping up here? Yeah, um, please do get in touch on LinkedIn. That is my preferred message, uh, preferred vehicle, actually. Feel free to message there. Uh, I respond to pretty much everybody. And uh, if you want to reach out on email, it's um, csanderson.data at gmail.com. Okay. And I'll drop that, but not as the actual email address in the show notes. So you don't get random spam bots hitting you. (laughs) But uh, this has been so phenomenal, Chad, really, really a lot of food for thought. I'm going to have to listen through it again, just to do my my summary wrap up up front, just because I think there's so many good nuggets to pull out of this. So uh, really want to thank you again for taking the time and thank everybody for taking the time to listen as well. I'd like to thank my guest again today, Chad Sanderson, who's the head of product data platform at Convoy. Chad's 
contact information is in the show notes. And as I said, he's very active on LinkedIn, so I would recommend following him. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left DataStax, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of Throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.